0: hey there today's offering is all about accessibility and inclusion when it comes to customer experience for ride hailing apps like uber for public and private transport for getting around inside buildings and also touching upon why smart tech is so empowering in the home for people with a range of disabilities it's a must listen guys here we go
1: Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this session on flower arranging. Whoops, no, it's not that one. This is the one, it's inclusive traveling back to the smart home of today. So, you're all very welcome to the session. I hope everyone is enjoying the conference. I'm delighted today to be joined by a distinguished panel of speakers and I'm going to let them all introduce themselves in a moment. I'm Robin Spinks. I work as Senior Innovation Manager at RNIB and I also am part of the World Blind Union Technology Committee and coincidentally happen to be a guy with low vision from the northern part of the UK. So if you do raise your hand, Um, I may not spot you I'm not ignoring you but if you need to get my attention you can you can say Robin there's a space for questions at the end of uh, the program we're quite tight for time um, and we've got lots of great content to share so thank you for coming along and I will pass the microphone to my left and uh, let uh, Ekaterina introduce herself.
2: Thank you, Robin. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Ekaterina um, and I lead accessibility at Uber. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about uh, kind of my role uh, later, but essentially most of my time I spend managing our Uber Access and Uber Assist products, but also looking at all the kind of the process, the policies we have around accessibility and how we can make um, our app more accessible. Really excited to be here and thank you to AbilityNet, to RNIB for giving me this opportunity.
3: Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Mark Powell. I firstly, thank you, thank you for everybody for for coming, and thank you for to AbilityNet and everybody involved with with TechShare uh, for having us. Um, I'm a part of the Innovation Through Partnership team at RNIB. Um, so again, we'll go more into into our roles and what we do in in, in, in a short time. But effectively, we work across multiple multiple market m- multiple market sectors uh, to. To invoke a change within within a particular industry um personally extremely passionate about raising the bar of accessibility um i'm affected by sight loss i've had a visual impairment since i was since i was a kid as of my as of all my family my dad my brother um also my partner we don't we don't just attract each other don't worry um (laughs) um, so our our house is quite an interesting place at times um but we both myself and my other half as an example we both have polar opposite sides. So we do effectively have one good pair of eyes between us, which which works. Um, one good part of our relationship anyway. Um, so I'll pass over to my colleague, John.
0: Afternoon, everybody. John Worsfold, RNIB. Um, I uh, uh, Innovation and Technology Implementation Manager, so lots of words, but what does that actually mean? It means that um, within our team, within Innovation Through Partnership, we try and solve some of those, those big problems. Uh, we c- that can involve uh, research, that can involve prototypes, but inevitably it means trying to create something that has some tangible difference. And um, today, hopefully we'll be able to show you a solution that we think has got a tangible difference from the point of view of Navigation.
1: Thanks everyone. Great. So thinking about this bigger picture of um, the world that we live in and thinking about travelling and getting from point to point, there are lots of considerations to be gone through. So I want to just take us on a little bit of a journey and think about inclusive travelling. So Some of the key questions we're setting out to deal with are how can innovative collaboration with major transport providers and airports help to bring about a deeper level of staff understanding and improved customer experience. We've heard it many times in the conference already that accessibility is a holistic endeavour and it needs to be about an end-to-end experience. It's not one or a number of segments of an experience. It has to encompass all of them. What might an effective and sustainable navigation experience feel like for blind and partially sighted people? Now, I should add, we are a specialist agency for blindness and partial sight. However, we're expected to deliver services that are pan-disability in terms of their approach and their compliance, for example. So it's recognised that we've got a specialism, but what we're talking about isn't exclusively helping one particular group. What might a genuinely scalable option for business look like? We've struggled with this for a long time, where we've seen various options that are infrastructure dependent or perhaps very heavily infrastructure dependent. So, you know, the real question is, how can we create something that's scalable and easy and cost effective to implement, but actually delivers a great benefit for individuals who are using um, the chosen service or location so let's talk about some of those collaborations, and I'm going to pass the microphone over to Mark and the clicker. And I'll move that slide on. Cool.
3: I'll pass this clicker over to you because God knows what we'll end up looking at. Um, <laughs> you, you don't need that one. Cool. Okay. So, so as part of our our role within the innovation through partnership team, one of our one of the most important parts of that is the engagement process, and. We, what we tend to, we we t- like I say, we we work across multiple markets and engage right across the board. Um, travel and transport being one of the really really important parts of what we do, um, because blind and partially sighted people rely on public transport um, from to get from A to B. Um, now, within that engagement process, we reach out to organisations and try to to partner with them and make a real difference. But what we tend to find is that the people that reach out to us. And actually, have a need in the first place tend to be the best partners that we we work with, um, and we want to share a little bit about our our relationship with with Gatwick Airport. Now, we we reached well, Gatwick reached out to us um, a good couple of years ago now, about three years ago, and and a, and they reached out because they they had a desire, they wanted to be the best that they possibly can be as as an airport, you know, an, an airport. I'm sure. Everybody will agree here. It's a it's a challenging environment for anybody, let alone somebody with a with a disability. um And Gatwick have sixty thousand. So they call them PRMs people persons with reduced mobility. So p- people with multiple disabilities. They have sixty thousand PRMs a month traveling through Gatwick, which is absolutely extraordinary. And and that that puts a, quite a strain on on their on their resources, but. They try and cope with it as as best as they possibly can. Now, if there's any any blind people in the room, and and this this is certainly my experience with with within um, when I've been to an airport before, I've checked in, absolutely no problem. Um, I've got some assistants checking in, and then the question, then the then the um, the indicator comes that I mentioned somebody that myself and my partner are both registered blind, and then all of a sudden there's there's sort of quite a, an awkward moment, and then. At that point, then two wheelchairs turn up. S-
0: somebody just <laughs> mentioned
3: wheelchair. <laughs> so, and then and then you then it's so. Right, get in the wheelchair. We, we'll take it. Oh, no, 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 we're absolutely fine. It's okay. No, no, no. And this that exchange makes things quite awkward. And so, what we what we tend to find uh, what what we did we what we, we did with Gatwick is we we worked with them from the point of view to understand them as a as a business. You know, it, there's no point. In us as an organization going into into another organization and saying, "This is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, and let's work with you on this. We need to understand the we this is a relationship, and we need to understand the roadmap of what you're trying to achieve and what we can help you do that and the way we did that is that we very early on we we laid out a memorandum of understanding an omo um which there was multiple points in there of the things that jointly we decided we wanted to work on over the next couple of years of of the relationship that we have one of them was within the awareness side which is why i brought the the example of of being being given a wheelchair which which may, which you know may have got me through quicker but you know i i just want to crack on you know like everybody else that's that's just the way 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 i want to be so what we did we were, we we decided to to go down the route of looking at awareness with Gatwick and that is really really key because for us as an organization again we we're spread our time is spread across multiple markets and if we can engage with an organization and actually allow that organization to understand what it might be like to live with a visual impairment and and empower them to with that level of understanding then we don't have to make we don't have to suggest the changes that that organization and with their particular specialism will come up with those solutions themselves and they will feel empowered to do that so we engage part of our engagement with gatwick and and the and the awareness side we introduce them to one of the tools that that we that we created at rib called iWay. now i is an app a free app um at, so just before we go any further, we we heard yesterday about some of the immersive experiences, and I, I think in the next couple of years that's that's going to get better and better. Now at the time, you know, it, in an ideal world, we would put everybody at Gatwick within an immersive experience and allow them to understand what it might be like with a visual impairment from the point of view of audio, the visuals, everything everything that we can to give them that. But what we had at the time was eyewear. Which was an augmented reality app, um, which basically filters the filters particular eye conditions over over your over the um, on the smartphone it uses the camera, so whatever the camera can see um, on the screen, you can select from multiple different multiple conditions. And we engage with uh, with all a lot of the hierarchy of Gatwick, including the CEO, and we allowed them to experience in their own environment. What it might be like to live with a visual impairment, and we walked from the north to the south terminal with the headset, which which John's uh, John's got in his hand here, um, and they felt something. There was a real emp- empathy generated from that experience. They were able to see what see what their environment looked like and felt like because so we can talk about sight loss being affecting your sight, but if it affects your whole being, it affects mobility, it affects everything. So that was a, that was a really big step for us and ultimately what we did the eyewear was then incorporated into into Gatwick's core training to um to be part of of what of what they do on an everyday basis and so and ultimately we've we've trained 3000 members of the Gatwick team using that tool and from that we were able to have a have a real ch- real impact on the organisation itself because now, at concept stage, accessibility is considered within every project that they do, and that was because of what they felt and what they got from using IWA. Um And we chose we ch- we we've really spent a lot of time working with Gatwick because it's a challenging environment for all of us. If we can improve the visuals for blind and partially sighted people, then you know it's going to be better for for a lot of you in the room right now. And the, a, being a challenging environment, it's it's something that that we can that we can play with and, and test. In that there are certain it's an ecosystem in itself. There are multiple. Le- multiple um, there's, I mean there's Ubers going to the airport There's, there are trains going into the airport there are buses going into the airport but there's also a whole retail space there and there's so much more we can do but what we did we had to have a baseline of understanding of visual impairment before we went further John I'll hand over to you
0: Thank you so w- when we talk about travel and transport let me get the clicker and we talk about wayfinding or how people get about. All of you got here today and you all overcame various obstacles and, and you know, you had your, your, uh, your macro level a thing that you wanted to make sure that you were here by a certain time. And you worked the rest out when you were here. For blind and partially sighted people, it's slightly different, as you know, from the point of view of a little bit more pre-planning and working out those things on the go uh, actually can make or break a journey. So within RNIB, we've been researching how people, and we call it wayfinding in general, but how people get about and orientate themselves. So we came up with four principles uh, or mythology, if you like, of wayfinding. And the acronym is gone, which is getting information and use it, and using it, orientation, navigation, and then entrance and exit identification or handover. And out of the the four, getting information and using it is the most important of those principles. And if you think about it, that's what we, as the sighted community, do on a general basis. We we. We scan our environment and we filter out what's important for us. We orientate towards it. We navigate towards it. And then we decide what we want to do with it. And it, And that's where the entrance and the exit bit comes in. You enter that task and then you go on to the next one. And then you repeat that process over and over and over again. Um, all of that obviously totally depends on the environment itself. And we're talking about solutions but if the actual environment isn't accessible and that could be physically accessible in terms of ramps and everything else but it also could be um, you know accessible in terms of getting that information then we're starting from a really really bad place and any solution that we come up with as a sticking plaster has got to be a, a great big bandage so obviously the the actual environment itself and the infrastructure is absolutely key to the usability of any solution that we may place on top of that to improve the situation. Now, when we, when we were researching um, all of this stuff, I've used the word stuff, I've got it in, well done, um, uh, we, we looked at, I think it was 66 different technologies, anything from Bluetooth low energy, Wi-Fi fingerprinting, ultrasonics, Uh, some really weird and wacky things, uh, inertial sensors strapped to people's feet. And we had a degree of success and failure based on how much we were prepared to invest in that technology. But let's be real about this. You know, we are only going to invest in something if it provides benefit, and then that benefit has a cost-benefit implication, and we do it all the time in our heads. And yet... We're walking around with what could be our best friend in terms of a smart device. So why can't we utilize that? Why do we have to buy another piece of kit when we've got something already that we potentially could use? Now, we know that um, when we start looking at solutions or how a machine might be able to help us, we know looking back in history that there are quite a few things that machines are quite good at reading. So barcodes, uh, optical codes, they're used in retail. Machines have been reading them for 20-odd years. Um, Barcode was actually invented, I think, in um, 1952. It's really old. QR code more recently, about 1994. But the problem with them is you have to know where they are. You have to be close to them. You have to autofocus. You have to... Uh, You can only detect one tag at a time, but the principle we know works in history. So we researched, well, we we carried out research to say, well, what is happening in that space? And we fell upon an organisation in Spain that was developing the next generation of QR code. And that, I was just checking the slide, that QR code um, allows the the actual code to be read at a much, much further distance than existing QR codes. So for example, 12 times farther. So an A3 size code, which some of you may have clocked on the floor, um, we can read at about 30 meters of the standard smart device. Now, if we can read it at distance, we can then start to mimic what the sighted community do in terms of reading signage because our smart devices can start scanning that environment and can actually start picking up on those codes and then delivering the information. So when we talk about, well, how do we know where they are, if I held my smart device in front of me, it would detect a code with an angle of 160 degrees. So effectively, as I walk into a room and I and my head is facing in front of me, I will scan the environment. We can do exactly the same with with our phone and pick up all of the the information that might be relevant to us using a device. So they're the principles behind what we were looking at. So then we thought, well, we really need to go and see if this works. So we travelled to Spain to have a look. It was already implemented there. And... um, yeah they implemented it on the bus system they implemented it on the metro system and it actually delivered what we were looking for so we were going to try something that i don't think has happened in in the sessions yesterday or today which is a, a live demo which i'm really quite worried about so mark can you do you want to help with I'll this see, no? you're yeah, this on me yeah so i'm yeah. going to put you on here so <laughs> if i so you might need a microphone to, to, um, to get your phone as well. And if you could, yeah, plug your phone in. I've got a code here, which is a five by five code. It's about an A3 sheet of paper. We actually printed this out on a uh, laser jet. And we put it in a, a laminate to make it a little bit more uh, sustainable for this trial. And if I walk at the back of the room, you tell me when you're ready.
3: Okay, so I have launched the the NaviLens app. Um, this is the interface which we we can go into a little bit a bit little bit later on, um, a little bit more. Now I've launched the app. The camera, so, sorry man. Sorry. Go for it, John.
0: Sorry, I'm gonna hold up the code at the back of the room.
3: I've got no idea where you are, I can't see you. No, well so, you,
0: you don't need to know, do you? No. Meters.
3: Two meters away.
0: Oh, it's, got the, for it's got the, sorry, it's got the one on the floor. So, it detects multiple codes at the same time. (laughs) Detected tag.
4: 11 meters away. Royal National Institute of Blind People. RNIB. Head office. Welcome to our head office. This is an avi-lens enabled zone. There are both steps and an accessible ramp at this main entrance. The main entrance can be found via the stairs in front of you or the ramp entrance to the right.
3: So, it gives an indication of how far away the tag actually is so this particular tag can be detected from around 30 metres away now the larger the tag the more detectable it is, the smaller the tag the less detectable it is which means that we can control the um, the level of information that we give to somebody within the environment because there's certain information like the toilets that you may not want to you may not want to know that the toilet door is 30 metres away but you may want to know that the toilet is in a particular area which is where the larger code will come into play The smaller codes would then come into play when you're near a door, as an example.
0: Yeah. So during the research, we found there were four types of information that somebody needed to um, interact with during uh, well, whilst navigating any complex environment. So static information is one, and we've just demonstrated a static wayfinding sign that you might be able to detect. Static information. But what about dynamic information? Information that's changing. So, again, Mark, if you point the tag towards me. Okay.
4: 2.50 meters away. Real time bus information for the next buses at the St. Pancras International Station bus stop. Line 214, Morgan, Finsbury Square. One minute and nine minutes. Line 46, St. Bartholomew's Hospital. Three
0: minutes and twelve minutes so that that again detected the real time bus information at St. Pancras bus stop, as you heard, and they were the real that's the time the buses are going. so if you need to catch a bus, you know when when it's going. The point is that wasn't a very very uh, highly expensive uh display; it was a piece of paper, and if that was stuck on the bus stop, I as a user don't need to remember the URL, don't need how to do it. All I need to do is point my phone in the general direction, and I get that sort of information. Now, we also, um, when we went to Spain, and on the screen, now Mark, I'm not sure whether you're going to detect the tag over there, because that's quite small. That's okay. So that is, is a, an implementation of the bus stop in Spain. So for those that can't see, it's a, it's a very weird shaped monoplinth um, with a tag stuck on the top. Now again, when Mark and I were there, we had no idea of the times of the buses. And to be honest, as professionals, how many of you actually use a bus as opposed to a taxi? And it's not because you like taxis. Generally, it's because you don't know where to ca- catch the bus and you don't know when to get off. Point your phone. Off it goes. Equally, one of the other research parts was we needed to detect moving tags. Tags that were moving. So again, with QR codes, they're static. If we place, and on the the slide, for those that can't see, there's a slide of of the side of a bus, and the tag is actually on the door, well, because you get orientation information, not only can I now know that of the two buses that turn up at the same time because when you're waiting for a bus always to turn up, which bus I need, but I can also locate the door to get on the correct bus. So, And, and um, the last uh, form of information that we need to be able to detect is multiple directional information. So we all know th- th- that with the older implementations of Bluetooth beacons, you, it was a trigger point, and you were told that reception was on the left, toilets were on the right. And as you came from the other direction, you were told exactly the same. Obviously, we need relevant information based on your direction. So, Mark, let me put this tag a little bit in the middle. So, can you take. Oh, the, the phone. Yeah, OK. I'll move a chair. Oh, thank you. Didn't see that.
3: You would have owed me a new one then. Yeah, I would, yeah. It has to continue scan resuming scan. Okay. So on the floor is one of the codes, just for everybody it's you know, if, uh, who can't see where where the code is. Now if I'm, I'm
4: five zero meters away, turn right for refreshments, turn left for the male and female toilets, continue straight ahead to exit Anfield Stadium.
3: As you probably guessed, I'm a l lo- I'm I will, a i am am
0: ai will return I'll rotate the code. Okay. So Mark's now walked up the code from the other direction.
4: Meter, 1.50 meters away, this way to the toilets. Continue in this direction for block 466 to 478. Turn right to exit Anfield Stadium. 1 meter. 1 meter. 1.50 meters away. Welcome to block 465. Continue straight ahead to enter the stadium. Turn left for refreshments and turn right for the male and female toilet. 1.5
0: Okay, so you get the idea from the point of view of a single code, and again, think of shared spaces and think of multiple decision points. You get the information based on your direction of travel and the way that you are that that, that you need now, obviously, this was designed for blind and partially sighted people, but we talk about sustainability, and how do we make a, a solution like this? become sustainable, well, that's to include the general public as well. If it works for the general public and it works for blind and partially sighted people, there's no longer that cost overhead to support those that this was designed for. So, a user has so many different user requirements. Um, We've demonstrated audio and visual. If Mark had touched the button, then it would have displayed the textual information. But imagine somebody wants British Sign Language. Again, within the app, they select British Sign Language. And if the stakeholder has, has um, introduced sign language video within each of the codes, then as they are walking around and detecting the codes, they will be delivered British Sign Language. Imagine somebody requires Easy Read. Or imagine somebody requires the form of pictograms. Again, they've got a device, it's configured the way they want to use it, now that information is delivered in the form they want. Um, equally, um, information relevant for children. So imagine the scenario of a museum, and there's an urn, and it's, it's a whole paragraph about the, you know, the urn and what it's doing. Actually, the child can select, I actually want the children version, and now that information is delivered in the form that they can understand. All through a sticky label... That doesn't need any power. From a client's perspective, as in an end user's perspective, the app is free. And from a stakeholder perspective, they can implement that into their own offering if they want, but they've got the autonomy and they're empowered to change all, all of these codes reside either in the cloud or on the client app. So they have the ability to manage all of this information So no longer will there be a a sticker on the lift saying out of order. They can simply change the code. And all of these code daisy-chain together from the point of view of I require step-free access, every single code will deliver the information to get me to the step-free access, even though it was originally a toilet sign or welcome to RNIB. It's now got multiple uses. So we believe this is one of the most easily implemented and flexible solutions going forward because it doesn't rely on you guys doing anything. All of the onus is put on the stakeholder and it's really, really easy for them to implement. Yep. Thank you. Guys.
2: Thank you. Um, so yeah, some really really exciting things which the friends from R and I B have uh, kind of taken us through. Um, so I'd like to take a few minutes to tell you a little bit more about our approach to accessibility at Uber. Um, so. You've as you probably know, uh, Uber's been kind of changing the way in which transportation works, specifically on uh, when it comes to on-demand um, traveling. And a lot of you may not think about accessibility when they hear Uber. And hopefully I'm here to kind of change this today and to tell you uh, a bit more about how we think about accessibility and how important um, it is for us. Um, so John mentioned earlier that uh, you know environments are a kind of a key component and essentially the starting point. Um, when we talk about kind of accessibility and how we all are finding our way around uh, kind of this complex world out there. Uh- Great. Um, So, yeah, I just wanted to use this as a starting point to say, yeah, we do recognize that environments are getting more and more complex and we are trying to constantly come up with solutions which uh, help us to kind of better navigate environments uh, in a better way and get from point A to point B, you know, easily, affordably, but also to make sure that everyone can benefit from this and from um, just getting a ride uh, at the top of a button. Um, So I wanted to start with just a bit of an overview on um, our approach to accessibility here in the UK. Um, So some people may think that it's just about the technologies or the actual app or the website and what we do to make sure that this is accessible. For me, it's a lot more than that. Uh, Obviously, this is definitely a key component. uh, But together with this, we also look at what can we do on the product side. So we have two uh, products which have been specifically designed for people with disabilities or anyone who may need uh, additional assistance. And I'll tell you a little bit more about these um, in a bit. Um, And also, last but not least, uh, people and processes. Uh, So I'm sure you are, all aware of the social model of disability and we are an organization which works with a lot of drivers and riders, thousands of people with kind of different backgrounds um, and we've come to recognize that this is something which we need to really focus on, uh, how we educate everyone who's on the platform um, to make sure that inclusion is part of everyone's mindset and then we go and travel, whether you are behind the <laughs> wheel or you're trying to, uh, to take a ride to go somewhere, you know what's expected and how you can uh, support those around you. And in the middle, in, um, um, so essentially on the on the slide, we have a graph with these three components. And in the middle, I've put uh, expert partners. Um, it's very v- important to recognize that uh, we're no experts when it comes to accessibility, um, and we know that. But we know it's important and we want to be as accessible as possible. That's why we are partnering with uh, a lot of different organizations. We c- we work very closely with Transport for All Inclusion Lon- London around... Um, disability quality training, we work uh, with Scope, uh with some local charities as well. I'm sure we'll be working with RNIV very soon with all the exciting things we've heard about. Um, and our approach is to kind of use the expertise of all of these uh, different organisations to tell us what are the problems and how we can uh, address it so we can look at new solutions. So I wanted to also give you a few examples and share some of the things which we've already done. Uh, obviously we recognise that there are people with a lot of different disabilities. Uh, I mean on the, on the slide we have a few examples but that's not an exhaustive list. So I'll just start with um, sharing some examples of specific features we have in place which we believe are helpful with people with different disabilities. So to begin with, for those who are blind or visually impaired, you know, even things which kind of come by default with uh, the Uber solution, such as cashless payment or upfront pricing can be quite helpful because like, you don't have to worry about uh, kind of how much it's going to cost at the end or looking for, uh, for cash or getting into any kind of argument with the drivers. Um, and we also have some Very strong anti-discrimination rules. Just last week, there was a specific uh, kind of place in the app introduced for the UK where discrimination can be very easily reported, uh, kind of straight to Uber. It is for both riders and drivers. Uh, Obviously, it could be all kinds of discrimination, like age, disability, sexual orientation, whatever it is, if you feel discriminated, you can report it, uh, and obviously we'll uh, kind of pick this up and try to take the relevant action. Um, and there's also some very strong uh, policies around service animal. Um, kind of, we we still see, unfortunately, service animal uh, kind of denial uh, in certain cases. Um, and what probably a lot of people don't recognize is that actually once this is reported to us and it could very easily be recorded via the app help section accessibility so there's a dedicated kind of path which you can easily follow uh, we have a process in place to investigate this uh, and the kind of the beauty of it is that we have a lot of access to data to so their like nobody needs to worry about think, uh, taking the licensing number of the driver or the vehicle uh, when they submit a complaint because we have all of these data about the trips we can see like on the GPS data did the driver and the rider meet and, and it really helps us to understand was there discrimination was the Equality Act breached and every time uh, we find this has happened the drivers are deactivated and removed from the app and we also report to like TFL or the relevant authority and kind of work very closely um, with them if, if they need support so these are some of the examples uh, which we think are quite helpful for um, people who are visually impaired um, then for deaf and hard of hearing both kind of riders and drivers uh, for riders um, I think that kind of the challenges there are probably fewer uh, compared to f- to if you are visually impaired, but we've also done quite a bit of work here with regards to drivers to make sure that if you're deaf or uh, kind of hard of hearing, you can join the Uber platform and have an opportunity to kind of to work, to drive, to earn uh, a healthy income. So we've uh, worked a lot with a company called Linguing, um to make sure that when drivers go- come for onboarding, for training, uh, they can use their app um, to make sure that everything is kind of easily understandable. Uh, and also there are kind of inbuilt messages into the app. So sometimes it may be that you order a ride and you see a message saying, your driver is uh, kind of deaf or hard of hearing. Please uh, make effort to communicate via the, kind of the chat um, the chat function um, in the app or just kind of bear this in mind um, when you go for your journey Uh, and obviously this means a lot as an opportunity for those individuals who um, join the platform another example for for people who have cognitive or intellectual disabilities is the option to share your ride so um, you can easily share your ride with uh, family or loved ones and kind of this Gives extra comfort um, and like feeling of safety because um, someone close to you always knows uh, where you are. And in addition to this, there are a lot of safety tools which are now inbuilt into the app. Like you can call 991 uh, kind of straight from uh, from the app uh, or the emergency services or indicate that something is, is wrong and get help um, is required. Um, And on the product side, so these were some of the technical solutions we have. Um, On the product side, uh, I've mentioned our two products, Uber Access and Uber Assist. Um, So some of you may have not heard about them, uh, but in the UK, we have them in a number of cities with Uber Access being uh, our wheelchair accessible service. Um, So these vehicles are fully wheelchairable for kind of powered wheelchairs, non-foldable. Everyone can kind of use the service. And Uber Assist is just for anyone who needs additional assistance, Uh, when they're traveling, whether it be to kind of get into the vehicle um, as they're ending their trip. And it could be people with disabilities, could be also elderly people, you know, pregnant women, or if you're leaving hospital and you need some help. Um, The really great thing about these two products is that all drivers who join Access and Assist uh, go through a three-hour face-to-face disability quality training. So this is delivered by Transport for All, by people with lived experience of disabilities. Um, So those drivers really understand what are the challenges that people are facing and how to best um, assist them. And the other thing is that both of, of these services are priced exactly the same uh, as uber X, so nobody would be charged uh, kind of more because they have ordered a wheelchair accessible vehicle um, and last but not least, as I mentioned already on the people side, this is actually a, a thing where the kind of the biggest benefits can come from even though we are obviously a technology company um, education especially when it comes to drivers is really important uh, because even when we have you know these accessible products we have all of the features uh, in the in the app there's still not uh, enough to make sure that you're gonna have a great uh, kind of seamless experience when you order an uber so that's why we've reviewed the the whole journey of a driver joining the platform uh, from onboarding. So there is guidance and training they receive as part of onboarding on accessibility. It's a bit more high level, but it's very kind of it's made very clear also what the expectation is from drivers to provide uh, service and support to people with disabilities. Also, what are the legal requirements? Because it's simply illegal to refuse service to, um, to someone who is disabled. Uh, And then obviously there's a specialist training, which I mentioned for the access and assist drivers. But there's also a lot of ongoing communication, which we, uh, or continuous education, which we're implementing with podcasts from uh, kind of people with disabilities who share with drivers, why is it important to make sure that they don't put barriers uh, kind of throughout their journeys, and what is the best uh, way to assist them. And all of these Efforts are not going to stop because we're obviously constantly onboarding new people. Um, and we've seen that kind of education has to be a continuous process. You have to do uh, refreshers, reminders to make sure that this is um, on kind of people's radar. And. Um, there are a lot of resources online which we have also developed, like community guidelines, both for riders and drivers. Because as I have said, it, you know, it's a platform which brings riders and drivers together and everyone should try to kind of behave in the best uh, way possible and be respectful. Um, so this continuous education uh, won't stop and we'll continue kind of investing um, in this to try and improve the culture of everyone who is uh, using the platform. And I just wanted to kind of end with uh, a quote from uh, Dara, our CEO, uh, because over the last two days at Pro, we've, we've spoken a lot about leadership buy-in. Um, I mean, I've joined Uber kind of relatively recently, about nine months ago, but it was really... Uh, I was quite happy to see that kind of Dara has made this uh, statement which is that we are committed to making accessibility a meaningful part of what we do and we are proud to be doing our part to enable improved access to transportation for people with disabilities. Um, He's also acknowledged that obviously we are already on the path of trying to kind of embed accessibility in everything we do but there is also a long way to go uh, and we recognize this and will continue engaging with expert partners um, to help us on this journey so I think this was uh, kind of everything from me We're really uh, excited to, to talk to you if you have uh, kind of questions at, at the end or if there was anything new you found out about and you want to, to ask uh, and find out more thank you okay.
1: thank you Cathy thank you Mark thank you John so we've been to the airport we've done that important journey through the airport that can often be perplexing and complex and we've also done our train journey where we use NaviLens once again then we've taken the bus to another location. This is like the story of my life. Lots of different transport solutions, and then we've done an Uber, and now the Uber has actually taken us back to our home, and that home is the smart home of today. And we want to just think for a moment. Um, the clicker is here about some of the, the the things that are that are happening in that domain um, that are that are kind of particularly helpful. So what smart home, why is a smart home particularly helpful from an accessibility perspective and what recent innovations might assist in enabling greater inclusion? So we talk a lot to our community of blind and partially sighted people about um, smart homes and smart speakers and we think that there's a really interesting story particularly about the smart speaker whether it's a Google Home or an Amazon Echo or indeed anything else that might pop up. Firstly, very affordable range of options that are akin to the cost of a takeaway for two people. That's quite an incredible stat, isn't it? We're not talking about stuff that's expensive. It's really cheap from about £30 upwards, sometimes less if you find an offer. Very little learning required to get started. Crucially, one of the things that we've noticed recently, which is really helpful from a from a kind of planning perspective, is that older people with disabilities don't consider smart speakers to be technology. That's quite a big thing, isn't it? You know, computers, smartphones, tablets, that's all technology. But they actually will say, oh, I'm not really into technology. And you ask them, do you have an Alexa or do you have a Google Home? Oh, I've got one of those. So there's a sense in which it's almost leapfrogged over the the keyboard, the desktop, the laptop, the tablet, the mobile, the smartphone. No ports, no keyboard, no mouse, uh, no being regarded as tech by many, and a growing range of uses which only require your voice. It's the age of ambient computing, talking to the air. So, um, helpful from an accessibility perspective. Why? So, instant up-to-date information on anything that you might search for. Uh, on the web, population data, people, places, events, geographical information. An excellent travel planner. Okay, Google, how do I get to Macrahanish? Anyone know where Macrahanish is? Yeah, points for that. It's in Scotland. It's very remote. There isn't a lot of public transport, but if you ask Google or Alexa, they'll tell you um, how you can get there. Um, also educational so okay google what does a rock hopper penguin look like perhaps you know maybe you've got kids as we have my my wife and i are both visually impaired like like mark and his his partner and um you know we often find that this is incredibly helpful imagine if you had to look up an encyclopedia or a a book of some kind to try and find out facts and four-year-olds don't want to wait long for an answer they want it quick so you know that's one of the first things that they knew My four-year-old knew how to use Echo and Google Home, uh, you know, before being probably by the age of about two and a half. It's incredible. And already now knows which one to ask for which particular type of information. You know, they're quite discerning. Um, So Home Control, Alexa or OK Google, change the lounge to Magenta, um, show me who's at the door turn up the heating working with things like connected thermostats and doorbells now those might sound like convenience items for all of us but for people who have a visual impairment and people with other disabilities the value is actually added it's a value add on top of what it delivers for regular consumers so some of the things that that are particularly interesting at the moment. Nest Home with facial recognition and customized music, videos, events, shopping, etc. So those devices now know who's talking to them and give you customized feedback rather than just giving you feedback from who spoke last. The ability to move music from one device to another as you move throughout your smart home. The ability to delete assistant data, for example, just by asking, that's a very recent addition, allowing you to do that. Much greater responsiveness due to on-device processing. Another one here that I wanted to throw in, and I love this as a visually impaired person, is whisper mode on Alexa. Anyone tried that? If you whisper something to your Alexa, it will say, I think you have just whispered. Would you like me to whisper to you when you whisper? And if you say yes, it'll say, okay, when you whisper, I'll whisper back. Try it right? If one of you is getting up early in the morning and you want to find out the time in your room, you can actually whisper, Alexa, what's the time? Okay, you can ask and you can actually get the time whispered back to you. You don't wake up the other person. So um, we're almost out of time. I'd like to give a big a uh, hand of thanks to to Mark Powell, to John Worsfold, and to Ekaterina Petakova for being fantastic panelists. I found that super interesting. So can we just give them a big round of applause? Thank you. <laughs> we're we're a little bit behind on time, but if anyone has any questions, if you'd like to to just um, you can either you can raise your hand and the low vision guy will try and find your hand, sir.
3: It's an idiot one. Uh, uh, Jordan from BT. Um, I have a question around um, the whole kind of um, accessibility of the actual um, uh, programming to be able to create your own sort of version of the QR codes. So as an organisation, I'm very interested, um, and I think it's it's got many different uses, and I, I think it's, it's fantastic, by the way. Um, can I, um, you know, how, how could you go away to kind of you know, do, do I, can I have the tools to basically just create my own or does it have to go through, you know, the Spanish company? Or are we not there yet?
0: So you can come to us and we can license a, a and arrange and a license of those codes for you, depending on what you want to do. And we could also help you implement the codes, the mythology. At the end of the day, the technology is just a trigger. It's just an enabler. The key bit is the message, and that message is derived by you as an organisation. So, allowing you and empowering you to create relevant messaging is the key to the use of of that technology. But yeah, I mean, it, it is it is relevant, and it's and it's it's available now from the point of view of we're looking for trials. Yeah,
3: thank you.
1: Any other questions at all from the audience? I'm just coming back so that. Oh, we've got one here. Excellent. Uh,
2: It's it's a little bit follow-up to that. Um, You were talking about uh, having the code stuck on the bus. Uh, And I just kind of wanted to clarify that because, I mean, a London bus, they have electronic screens that change what the bus is. Was that just telling you what the door was, like this is the door and it's going to open to the left or something? Or is it telling you this is bus 214? or i guess yeah i was just wondering how that would implementation of that would work effectively yeah yeah
3: so no absolutely no it's a it's a really good question and effectively the code can be what the stakeholder wanted to be it could be that dynamic information saying yes this is bus number 442 and it's going to london bridge or it could be yes this this is this is the door to the bus please enter and and take care but yeah, or it could be a priority. See, it could be absolutely anything you want. You want that to be now. In an, I think, I think from our point of view, uh, that would be uh, that would be the bus number. It would be to identify the bus itself. Uh, that's what we would we would certainly recommend. And just very very quickly, you know, we've done a we've done a whistle stop tour of this technology here. I don't think, you know, we could have gone on for another hour to talk about it. Um, but yeah, certainly, if there's any questions around it, do fire them at us when when we finish.
1: Thanks, Mark. And I should say we're super keen to partner with any organizations who think this technology would be would be useful. I think we've got time for maybe one more question. Does anyone have a question? I'm patrolling through. This is a low vision guy, just avoiding the guide dog. Lovely dog. Um, hi there. Any questions up the back at all? Uh, anyone else who would like? Oh, just here. Um so that's that 's a really fantastic piece of product i 've seen actually in the, in, a, in, a <laughs> in a few weeks now uh, so one question I have is uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, how do we make maps more accessible is there any any way of integrating this with uh, location based uh, services using maps
0: so that totally depends on 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 what you mean by location based services and maps, but effectively, if you can Uh, pepper the environment and your, I mean, for example, if if this was integrated into a standard blue dot location-based service, then you can pepper the environment with the codes to fill the gaps, but you've still got the issue if you have a digital map and you're expecting somebody to assimilate that information they generally need some context. They need to know they they need to be able to have some level of vision and awareness of what the importance of the, that information is. We the whole concept of this is, is to give the individual the same amount of freedom that sighted individuals have. Sighted individuals, and I'm sure you, if, if I gave you some instructions of how to get to. The breakout session for a coffee, you would take the first one from the point of view, get up and go to the door. But after that, A, you'll have forgotten them, and B, you're working out on the way. So why is it solutions for visually impaired in terms of navigation tend to give blind and partially sighted people a list of instructions to go from A to B? And what tends to happen then is you isolate that individual from all of the other things they could do. So yes, you might get to the gate on time. But you've missed the fact that you could have had a coffee on the way or you could have gone to duty free or whatever it happens to be. So the whole point here is to, is to create that level of engagement and choice that we all take for granted.
1: It's a great way of summing it up. Thank you, John. Engagement and choice and giving people more possibilities, more flexibility and more independence. Once again, thanks very much to my panellists and thank you very much, everyone, for coming. <clears throat>